You know, we all know that today is Super Bowl Sunday. It's America's holy day, if you will, complete with all of its religious rituals. It's a reminder that that all people and all cultures are deeply religious, no matter how much they claim to be irreligious. They all have saviors to worship, heavens to attain, hells to avoid, temples where they offer sacrifices, pilgrimages which render them holy, holy days to observe, and the promise of the good life if you are truly committed. In American culture, we know that the saviors to worship are guys like Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes, and heaven is a football dynasty where you collect one Super Bowl trophy after another, and hell is, well, the New York Jets. The temples, like Lucas Oil Stadium, cost billions of dollars where untold thousands come and offer their sacrifices. And the pilgrimage reaches its pinnacle on Super Bowl Sunday, the holiest of all holy days. You know, in the ancient world, there were greedy extortioners and money changers who would come to to make a profit on those coming to the temple to offer their sacrifices. And, And today, corporations spend billions of dollars to swindle your money and dupe you into buying things you don't need with money you don't have to impress people whose opinions really don't matter. And of course, this version of the good life includes the glory of being at the game or at least hosting a a grand party, decked out in all the gear and enjoying all the decadence that ensues. The costs might be exorbitant, but we believe the lie that the good life is worth it. You know, some in our culture tell us that the the real Jesus wears a football helmet and is going to bring us Super Bowl trophies. Others tell us the real Jesus came to liberate us from oppression. That's that's what he came to do. Some say the real Jesus is coming to get you a good job and a stable life, or maybe to to make your kids moral, or maybe the, the real Jesus came to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. Maybe you're here wondering who the real Jesus is. Maybe you're not You're not wishing the real Slim Shady would stand up, but you are wishing the real Jesus would please stand up. Well, good news for you. Matthew is going to tell you who the real Jesus is. He'll show us the real Jesus isn't here to get you a job, and he's not touchdown Jesus here to make you successful. He's not here just to give you moral kids either. No, the real Jesus is the crucified and risen Son of God, and we'll see that he is worthy of your worship. So as we take a look at what Matthew says, I want to go back to prayer one more time. Just join your hearts with mine. Let's ask God to show us the real Jesus this morning. Father, we want to see your son, the real Jesus, as he truly is. We don't want distractions to get in our way. We want to see clearly. And we ask you would open the eyes of our hearts. You would help us to hear clearly. And we ask that your word would pierce our souls and bring us to you. We ask that we wouldn't be messing around or playing games with you this morning, but we would see you for who you are and we would worship you. Holy Spirit, open our minds to behold wondrous things from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The one central question in Matthew's narrative here is this. Who is the real Jesus? 
Who is the real Jesus? You see, when we open up the Bible here, what I'm not doing is just kind of finding some funny stories or interesting anecdotes that have something to do with what Matthew said. No, I want to take a flashlight and shine it on the Bible and help you to see here is the main thing Matthew is saying. Right, so if you look back at your Bible in verse 37, look at it. Matthew 27, 37, it reads, And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So it starts with, who is the real Jesus? And there's a claim made about it. And there's, on the other end of the passage, there's like a bookend, right? So you, you sort of start with the question, who is this real Jesus? And here's a claim about the real Jesus. And at the very end, verse 54, the very last phrase in our passage says, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is what Matthew wants you to see. Who's the real Jesus? It starts with kind of this announcement. It's the right announcement, the wrong announcement, and it ends with the answer. That's what Matthew wants you to see. And he's going to answer that Jesus is the crucified and risen Son of God who is worthy of your worship. And so for our flow of the sermon this morning, what I want to do is take a couple of minutes and just kind of paint a picture and walk through some of the people in Matthew's story who are asking who the real Jesus is. And then after that, we're going to see how God responds with five evidences saying, this is who the real Jesus is. So the first part might be a little bit tougher to take notes. Don't worry about that. And then towards the end, it might be a little bit easier if you're a, if you're a note-taking person. Um, but whatever the case, we will see that Jesus is this crucified and risen Son of God who's worthy of our worship. The story picks up with Matthew highlighting the mockery of Jesus. Matthew highlights that immediately. Look back at your copy of the Bible, verse 35, where Mariah started. It says, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Isn't that interesting? Matthew says that the crucifixion of Jesus is almost like an aside as he introduces it. Oh, and after they'd crucified him, here's what they were doing. Like the main point is they basically set up a casino at the foot of Jesus' crucifixion. Like what a bizarre, mocking way to open what Matthew wants you to see. And then in verse 39, we read that those who passed by were wagging their heads. <laughs> I love that phrase. They're wagging their heads. It makes me think of, of watching uh, ESPN or something, and you see a basketball game, and maybe the TV's on mute, and you see one guy dunk on another guy, and as he's going back down the floor, all you see is him wagging his head, like, yeah, I just dunked on you, man. Like, I made a fool of you. That's the picture we get here. People walking by like, yeah, I made a fool of you, Jesus. You're not on my level. Verse 41, look down. We, we continue this theme of mockery. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, what did they do? They mocked him. Drop your eyes down to verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in this way. It takes us back to the, the predictions made about Jesus in Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. You see, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Can you just imagine the scene for a second? You've got Jesus beaten to a pulp, unrecognizable as a human being, with Flesh and bones being revealed to all who walk by. Try to picture something that gruesome. 
And then he's, he's nailed to this wooden cross on top of a rocky hill that's about 40 feet high. So the ceilings in this room are about 30 feet high. Add another 10 feet So this rocky hill where Jesus is naked with maybe a loincloth pinned to him. He's nailed to the cross and people are walking by and they see this gruesome picture and there's not even a shred of humanity to just be like, whoa. There's no compassion. They're walking by mocking him, reviling him, wagging their head. It's a bizarre picture, kind of a sick, disgusting, perverted picture if you really start to think about it. Psalm 22, I quoted a second ago. Let's come back and read a little bit later. It says, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Matthew's highlighting the mockery of Jesus. Nobody's taking this guy seriously. Now, you might be here and you're not sure about the Bible. Maybe you don't believe it all the way yet. Let me just point out that this prophecy in Psalm 22 that we've quoted twice, that's echoed here in Matthew's gospel, it was written 600 years before Jesus came. So you may not be fully persuaded by that, but you need to note this is great evidence, a powerful argument that the Bible is not a human book, it's a book from God. Because that kind of fulfilled prophecy doesn't happen in human books. It's a divine book. But what we see about the mockery of Jesus isn't just fulfilled prophecy. It also shows us that a self-righteous attitude is far more subtle and far more dangerous than we think. His self-righteousness is, is wanting everybody to see how good we are. I'm, I'm awfully good. Let me tell you how, how righteous I am. And this self-righteousness is no respecter of persons. It comes for all of us, regardless of age, race, sex, political party, socioeconomic status, any, any demographic figure, it doesn't weed you out. Self-righteousness is coming for you. I found out this week, even with my kids, like little ones that came for them. We, we got this routine, we go ready for bed, you know, you do the normal things, you brush your teeth, you go potty, you put your jammies on, you do all that. And you see it on the screen here, I, I tucked them into bed, and as usual, I told them I love them, and I'm proud of them, and one who shall remain unnamed responded with, Dad, I love you, and I'm proud of myself. <laughs> like, even the little ones are self-righteous. You don't gotta teach them this stuff. It just comes and gets everybody. Back in the story, you see there are just common bystanders, right? So this, this Golgotha where Jesus is being crucified, the 40-foot high stone mountain, it's right next to a major highway. It's just people walking by. And as they walk by, what's their impulse? Oh, yeah, I'm better than that guy. Yeah, I'm proud of myself. I'm proud that I'm not like him. It gets the commoners. Self-righteousness does. Self-righteousness gets those with political power, the Roman soldiers. Maybe it's a little easier to see people in our day like, oh, yeah, I know the political power people. Yeah, they're self-righteous. There's no doubt there. But the robbers, the robbers were just as self-righteous. Now, what's even more uh, significant about this is that word robbers is true, but it doesn't quite capture how bad these dudes were. So stealing was not a capital offense back in that culture. 
So these guys weren't merely robbers. They were more like guerrilla warriors. And so what was really common is if they wanted to steal your stuff, they'd just come and kill you, and then it was easier to take your stuff and not have to worry about anything. So they were, they were more likely like this band of brutal marauders coming through, killing everybody in their path, and stealing whatever they wanted. And so you've got these convicted murderers right next to Jesus, so self-righteous, they look over, they're like, man, I'm better than that guy. Like, think how bizarre that picture is. How subtle the self-righteousness is. And it wasn't just the convicted criminals either. It was the religious leaders. Look at verse 43. We're in the middle of the mockery from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And they say, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. Do you hear what they're saying? Like, Jesus, God didn't even want you. You're a fraud. If he wanted you, he would have done something else. He wants us, though, because we are so good. Man, so if if self-righteousness can get my cute kids, and it can get the common bystanders, and those with political power, and the convicted criminals, and the religious leaders, and you think it can't get you, you're deceived. Man, so one of the major lessons we got to look and just looking at the the people who are mocking Jesus is seeing the prevalence of a self-righteous attitude. And we need to every day pray, God, show me where I'm blind to my self-righteousness. But everybody felt self-righteous because Jesus did look like a fraud. On the surface, it would have looked like you were following the wrong guy, wouldn't it? He said he came to bring life, and now he was hardly alive. He said he came to save others, and now he couldn't save himself. He said he'd bring a kingdom, but a different kingdom. The Roman kingdom had triumphed. The real irony of the matter, then, is that that Jesus actually came to give his life. That was his mission. And so on the cross, any weak-minded person, any moderately strong-minded person. Anybody could tap out and be like, yeah, I'm done with this. Get me out of here. This is terrible. That's not what he did, though. You see, to come down from the cross would be to abandon his mission. The only way, catch it, the only way for him to lose would be to give in to the temptation of the mockers and come down from the cross. So while we know that God's justice requires a penalty for our sins, it requires death, what held Jesus to the cross wasn't those nails. No, what held him up was his love for you and for me. That's what held him there. John in his gospel would say it this way. He said, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Man, I love that. He loved you all the way to the end. He never tapped out. That's why William Barclay would say, it is precisely because he would not come down that we believe in him. You see, from this side, we know that Jesus didn't fail. We know that. But it did look like he had failed. What had truly failed, though, was their spiritual eyesight, They were looking for a Jesus who would rule like them. They were looking for a Jesus who would conquer like them. And friends, the real Jesus is on a totally different level. He wasn't conforming to their image. No, he was demanding that they conform to his image. 
It's like they were investing in a lemonade stand and he was investing in Amazon. The strategy looked totally different. The terms of success were totally different. And the final results were infinitely beyond anything they could have expected. You see, the difficulty, the difficulty of expecting Jesus to deliver on our terms is pervasive in the evangelical church today. It's pervasive. The question, who is the real Jesus, remains massively significant for us today. For the Christian, you may have a picture of success in your mind. Let me just tell you, this picture must be defined by Jesus. You may think of success in various facets of your life, in in your personal life, in your family life, in the the life of your local church, or, or even the broader world as you want to see and we want to see the kingdom of God advance. And blind spots here are remarkably hard to identify, aren't they? This is where we need good, solid, biblical community, people we can sit down over a cup of coffee with and say, man, it feels like the sky is falling. Can you help me see how God is at work here? Maybe like the band REM, you think it's the end of the world as you know it, but unlike them, you don't feel fine. Maybe you can passively affirm the sovereignty of God, but you need to actively embrace it. I love the words of of Harold Sinkbeel here. Pastor Sinkbeel says this. He says, human history is littered with suffering and mayhem, but in God's estimation, it's always harvest time. You see, on the, the darkest day in the history of the entire world, Jesus was still harvesting. Roman soldiers are still crying out, truly he was the son of God. Friends, do you see the lost and dying around you in view of God's desire to save them? Or do you see the very real suffering and mayhem in our world and lose hope? Maybe you're here, you're not a Christian yet. Let me just tell you, this question, who is the real Jesus, is the most critical question you will ever ask. We've not fully answered it yet. But some might say that Jesus is a a wise teacher, maybe an interesting historical figure. Some might say he's deranged. Christians will tell you he's the son of God. Can I just take one of those answers off the table for you? One that you cannot answer who Jesus is, the real Jesus? It's this, Jesus cannot just be a great moral teacher. You don't get killed for being a moral teacher, an ethicist. No, Jesus got killed for making demands on people's lives and saying he was the son of God. And even the people at the crucifixion missed this because as he's dying, they think he's calling down Elijah like, oh, I need a prophet greater than myself. I was, I was one prophet, I need a better prophet, let's call on Elijah. You remember that when Mariah read that he's calling down Elijah? I love how C.S. Lewis kind of frames this issue in for us. So listen to what Lewis says. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, (laughs) or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Guys, if you aren't sure what you think about the real Jesus, stick with me here. Do not disengage. This is the most critical question you'll ever ask in your entire life. That question, who is the real Jesus? It's the the central one Matthew wants you to consider. And we looked at the question from what our culture might say and what the people in the passage said, and we looked at it how we might ask it. Now let's look at how Matthew answers it. You see, all this mockery of Jesus, all these wrong answers going out, and God speaks in and gives five evidences. Five evidences that Jesus is the crucified and risen Son of God, and he is worthy of your worship. If you're taking notes, this is a good good time to write that down. Jesus is the crucified and risen Son of God, and he is worthy of your worship. Five evidences. Evidence number one, the evidence of darkness. Look back at your copy of the scriptures, verse 45. Here's what we read. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Now, you might be confused, like sixth hour, ninth hour, what what time does that mean? The Jewish day started at 6 a.m. So the sixth hour then is noon. Jesus, we're told, was crucified at the third hour. 6 a.m. is the start, third hour is 9 a.m. By noon, he's been on the cross three hours. And that's when the situation begins to intensify even more. There's darkness that falls over the land at high noon for three hours. It's like God is saying, pay attention. Listen up. This isn't just another crucifixion. This isn't just another criminal being punished. No, this is something much more. Pay attention. And like with most portions of the Bible, skeptics have tried to dismiss this. Say, oh, it was just an eclipse of some sort. It wasn't actually supernatural activity. But what's amazing is every time that a skeptic brings some claim against the Bible, you can dive in, investigate it, and see that the Bible always stands secure. In, In this case, an eclipse can only happen at a new moon. If you're into lunar stuff, I don't even know what you call that, you'll know that eclipse can only happen at a new moon. But Passover, when Jesus was crucified, always happens at full moon. So literally, based on the alignment of the stars, it was impossible for it to be a naturally occurring eclipse. So supernatural activity, God saying, pay attention, this is my son. The evidence tells us that the real Jesus wasn't merely a misguided soul who claimed too much and bit off a bit more than he could chew. He wasn't just another false messiah in a long line of wannabes. And as the darkness lasts three hours at 3 p.m., the situation continues to escalate. Look at verse 46. We read, and about the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is exactly what Psalm 22:1 said Jesus would cry out from the cross. At that moment, when Jesus cries out, the next two evidences of who he is kick in. So the second evidence is this, the temple curtain is torn. 
The temple curtain is torn. Verse 51, we read, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. So this curtain is 60 feet wide, 30 feet tall, and about as thick as a man's palm like this. So maybe four to six inches, depending on how big of a bear paw somebody's got. This thing took 300 warriors to lift it. This isn't like the curtain over your windows, okay? It's an altogether different kind of curtain. And the significance of this curtain is that it protected the holy of holies in the temple, the holiest place. Exodus 26 tells us about this. It's, it's on the screen. Uh, verses 33 and 34, we read, And the veil, that's, that's the, uh, the curtain, shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy place. So if you think about the temple here, you've got the holy place here, and then the curtain here, 60 feet wide, 30 feet tall, four to six inches thick. And on the other side is the most holy place, the holy of holies, maybe you've heard it called, where this mercy seat sits, where you receive mercy from God. And so once a year, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. But nobody else could ever go into the Holy of Holies. There's one day where one person for the whole nation can go in. Anybody else goes in there, struck dead on the spot. High priest goes in on the wrong day, struck dead on the spot. High priest goes in on the right day, but offers the sacrifice in a wrong way, struck dead on the spot. Because God's holiness is so important. And then what happens? He goes in, high priest, and he offers a sacrifice to atone for sins. He brings a spotless lamb, sacrifices it, and it pulls back God's wrath. So his judgment is not poured out on his people. That's what this curtain is. And so when Jesus comes and he dies, he tears the temple from top to the curtain from top to bottom. He makes a way for you to be with God. You see, the message of the Old Testament up to this point has been one time after another, you can't draw near to God. Right? The Garden of Eden, get out. On Mount Sinai, where Moses receives the Ten Commandments, stand back, you can't be close to me. And then at the temple, stay away, get behind the veil. And now for the first time ever in history, God himself intervenes because we could never get ourselves to God. He tears the curtain from top to bottom to be perfectly clear that he's the one doing it, not us saying, now you can come to God. Now you can be brought near. And instead of a, a sacrifice, a lamb having to be sacrificed every single year to pay for the sins of the people, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, can die once for the sins of the entire world. The new message then is unlike the old message. The old message is get back, stand away, get out of here. You can't draw near to God. The new message is God will bring you near to himself. First Peter 3 would say it this way. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Man, that's good news. I wonder if you need to be brought to God this morning and you're still trying to tear through that curtain on your own. You need to place your faith in Jesus. Hebrews 10 would say it a little bit differently. It says, therefore, brothers, 
since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that great? You think about the Old Testament, they had no confidence, man. Like, if you're not the high priest, you better stay a long way away. You're gonna die. And if you're the high priest, you imagine how scary that is to go in there? You better not screw anything up, man. You're gonna drop dead on the spot. And the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy place, not because of what we did, but because of the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Man, that's good news, isn't it? I love that. The evidence of the torn temple curtain tells us that Jesus wasn't merely a prophet teaching you about God. No. He is God in flesh who came to cleanse you and bring you to God. Third evidence, this happens at the exact same time as the temple curtain being torn is the earthquake. Verse 51, the second section. Look back at your copy of the scriptures. It says, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. There's an earthquake that takes place. At the exact moment that Jesus cries out, the curtain is torn, the rocks split, the earthquakes, and it's as if God is saying, Yes, I know that at 3 p.m. the priests come to offer sacrifices, and so while they're staring at the curtain, thinking about offering sacrifices, I'm going to tear it, and the Jewish leaders will know what's going on. But I also want the whole entire world to know. You're not at the temple, no big deal. You're out on the, the, the highway of the first century visiting Walmart or wherever you go. Yeah, this message is for everybody. Jesus isn't just the Jewish way to God He's not just the Christian way to God. He's the only way to God. For everyone, all people, all time, all places, doesn't matter what your background is, what your family history, he has come to save sinners. You see, this isn't the first time, though, we've seen an earthquake when God visits mankind. Think back to Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain. God comes down to give the Ten Commandments. Here's what we read about that, Exodus 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. Exodus 19, the previous chapter, would say that the whole mountain trembled greatly. Can you imagine looking up at that as God comes down, he meets Moses on the mountain and the whole mountain is smoking greatly. And the whole thing is trembling. Thunder's clashing. Lightning's flashing down. And of course, there's an actual earthquake happening there. But there's more. God is giving Moses the law, the commands. Here's what you must do. And as as if the people felt the demands of the law on them, and they quaked with fear, knowing there's no way we could ever do that. It's like if I told my kids, hey, it's five minutes till dinner, and I want you to clean all your toys. Like, like, Dad, there's no way we can do that in five minutes. We've been wrecking the whole house. And they despair, and they, oh, I can't do it, Dad. That's what the people are like. They, they see the law of God being given, the demands that it has, and it's crushing them. 
If you've ever tried really hard to keep the commands of God, you know that's what it's like, isn't it? No matter how hard you try, just try a little harder and you fail a little more. Then you feel a lot worse about it because the harder you try, the more you fail. Then you're a real screw up. This earthquake, though, this earthquake is different. Jesus comes and he dies. And when the earth quakes, it's like he picks up the rocks of guilt and shame that are crushing you. And he picks them up and he throws them down and they shatter and they split into a million pieces. And he's liberating you from the guilt and from the shame of the law that's bearing down on you. And he's liberating you by his grace to live freely in him. That's why John in his gospel would say it this way. He'd say, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's like your life is a giant physics test. You've never taken physics, but you try to clep out anyways. And they put those equations in front of you. Man, you don't have a clue what that thing means. So you just hand it in blank like, yeah, I'm toast. I don't know what to do with this. And Jesus came along and lived a perfect life. And he perfectly took the test, aced every single question, perfectly showing his work down to the, the most 17th decimal point after. He nailed it every single point. And he went to turn it in, and he erased his name, and he put your name on it. And he took your blank test, 0% failure, erases your name, writes his name on it, turns him in and says, here in this earthquake, I'm giving you grace and truth. You can have my perfect test. Everything that comes along with it, and I'll take all the judgment, all the pain, all the failing grades, all the destruction that come with your test. If you'll just accept his test. The evidence of the earthquake tells that Jesus isn't just some Jewish deity. No, he's the God of the entire universe. And instead of giving you rules by which you need to live and measure up, no, he's kept all the rules and is offering you his perfect record. Fourth evidence, the conversion of Roman soldiers. Verse 54, we read, When the centurions and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Because This is the greatest miracle of them all. Because an earthquake might make you tremble in fear, but a transformed life will melt your heart with joy. Man, and some of you were recently converted, and you're sitting here in awe of what God has done in your life. And others, you've seen people converted recently, and just thinking about it right now, their story is popping into your head, and you're welling up with tears of joy. Like, this is amazing to see what God did in their life. But there are some of us, too, that we know that the power of the gospel is there to save sinners, but we've insulated ourselves from anyone not like ourselves. We've isolated ourselves from real, meaningful relationships with those who don't know Jesus. And maybe your need this morning is to get on mission and realize that the gospel is powerful to save people. And you need to join Jesus on his mission instead of using him as a prop for your mission. Eddie mentioned this earlier, but I wonder if some of you haven't lost sight of the wonder of your conversion. God would save you of all people. Maybe your affections this week are more gripped by what somebody thinks about you than what God has declared about you. And your attention is, is more squarely on what you have gained or lost in the stock market this week than what you have gained in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
and your gaze is fixed on the stressors of life and how to pay the bills and just make it to Friday at five. Maybe you were once filled with awe at God's power to save you, (laughs) you of all people, but your heart no longer sings amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Maybe that's you this morning. But maybe you're here and you are not like the Roman soldiers and that you haven't been converted yet. You don't know Jesus yet. And maybe just like those Roman soldiers, like they didn't know all this Old Testament backstory stuff of the, the curtain, the temple, the, the, the mountain where Moses was. Like they, they don't know all that stuff. All they know is I stand condemned before God because I know I'm not good enough. And I know this guy, this Jesus, he's the real Jesus and he's come to save me of my sins and I need him. And they just cry and say, truly, this man was the son of God. I'm gonna tell you, if you will just stop right now in, in, in your seat and cry out to Jesus, he will save you of your sins. Man, I'm giving you permission. You don't hear preachers say this very often. Like you can stop paying attention to everything I have to say and cry out to Jesus in this auditorium or at home in your living room or wherever you're at and he will save you. Maybe that's exactly what you need to do this morning. You need to know that Jesus didn't come to help you clean up your act, to make you a bad person into a better person, but to come and see you as a spiritually dead person and make you into an alive person. The evidence of conversion tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That was his mission. He came to save criminals. He came to save religious hypocrites. He came to save Roman soldiers, and he came to save sinners like you and like me. And on the darkest day of human history, God was still in the business of harvesting, of saving souls from eternity in hell, and he's still doing that today. Fifth evidence, last one, the resurrection. Look at verses 52 and 53. The tombs also were opened, And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. It's interesting. I want you to go back and I want to read that more carefully and notice when does this happen? Let's let's read those two verses again. The tombs also were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Verse 53. And coming out of the tombs, After his, Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. After Jesus' resurrection, why does that matter? It's because Jesus' resurrection unlocks the possibility of their resurrection and of your resurrection. It's on that basis. You might read that and think, well, who are these people? Who are these people that got resurrected? The point is, if God wanted us to know, he would have told us. We don't know exactly who they are. The point that he's trying to make and that we ought to see is that death is defeated and resurrection is guaranteed because Jesus was raised. You see, Jesus' resurrection here is the linchpin of all of Christianity. One poet said it this way. He said he wrote a, he wrote a check with his life and at the resurrection we all cheered because that meant the check cleared. A check that doesn't clear is no good. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, what all of Christianity rises or falls on, 
The death of Jesus is only complete if he rises from the dead. And this is so important because this establishes Christianity as a historically verifiable faith. Yes, God will require you to take steps of faith, but he's not asking you to take blind faith. He's asking you to investigate and see, is this really the case? Does Christianity hold up under the weight of the evidence? And one critical test to see if a truth claim is actually true is what's called the, the test of falsifiability. It's a tongue twister. It just means this. Could you disprove it? And if you can disprove it, then it's more legitimate. And Eddie read this earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul lays out this. Here's exactly how you would disprove Christianity. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This is exactly the kind of thing that you do not see in most religious texts. Here's how you can take our entire religion and just throw it away. Here's how you can be done with it in a heartbeat. You don't see this in religious texts unless the evidence is there to back it up. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ has some of the strongest historical evidence of any event in all of history. I actually made this one of the major themes of my graduate studies of investigating this. And you stack it up against any other historical figures. And like, no, the, the evidence is unbelievable. I'd love to talk to you more about that evidence. But Jesus, we know for sure, rose from the dead. Which is good news because, as I said, the death of Jesus was only complete if he did rise from the dead. But praise God, he didn't stay dead. No, he conquered death three days later. And so the, the evidence of the resurrection tells us that Jesus isn't just the crucified son of God. No, he's also the resurrected son of God. And because he's the only one who's ever conquered death, then he's worthy of your worship. Who is the real Jesus? He's the crucified and risen son of God who's worthy of your worship. He's the perfect sacrifice who forever destroys the barrier between you and God. He'll rip the curtain of guilt and shame in your life because your identity is no longer grounded in whether you kept the rules or not, but because he lived the perfect life you couldn't live and died the gruesome death that you should have died so that you can be with God again. The real Jesus is in the business of taking rocky, self-righteous, guilt-laden hearts and splitting them open with his grace. The real Jesus isn't interested in making bad people good but in making dead people alive. And for those united to him by faith, death is no longer a foe to be feared because his resurrection has liberated us to live on mission with reckless abandon because our life is guaranteed by his. At the beginning, we started talking about false Jesuses, false messiahs you might worship. Maybe you've never worshiped the real Jesus. If that's you, just like the Roman soldiers, I've said this before, I'm gonna say it again. You can cry out to him for salvation today for forgiveness of your sins and he will save you. But many of you here are already Christians. You do know Jesus. He has saved you of your sins. And yet maybe as you think on the last week or two of your life, there are other things that have seemed more worthy of your worship and your affections than Jesus. So as we go to communion, 
I just want you to remember this. This is a time to celebrate and remember what Jesus has done. You can confess those things to him that you have loved more than him. And if you don't know Jesus, don't don't take communion. That's not for you. You're not remembering what he did for you yet. But there will be a time of quiet where you can do business with God. You can talk to him and you can ask him to forgive you. And if you do know him, can I just encourage you? Man, repent of your self-righteousness this morning. Repent of expecting Jesus to deliver on your terms and remember the wonder of his sacrifice. Find delight in his tearing of the veil, which brings you near to God. And be once again amazed that his grace would reach to a sinner like you. Let your heart exclaim that Jesus is Lord, that death is defeated, and heaven is your home. Who's the real Jesus? He's the crucified and risen Son of God, and he's worthy of your worship. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you amazed at what you would do to save us. You are the crucified, the risen Son of God, That you would, you would come and die to tear the veil and bring us back to God. That you would take the guilt and the shame from the law that's crushing us and pick it up and throw it aside. Give us freedom in your name and you would guarantee all of this by your resurrection. I ask this morning, as, as we have a few minutes of quiet here, that you would just bring our hearts to a place of wonder at who you are and what you've done. Bring us to a place of worship and repentance. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.